Our sermon passage this morning is going to be 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And if you're using your pew Bible, that's going to be on page 1015. And just a, a, a word about Bibles. Uh, if you don't own your own Bible, your own copy of God's Word, please feel free to take uh, the Bible that you see in the pew and let that be our gift to you uh, as a church. We've got plenty more where that came from, so please feel free uh, to take that one. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we're going to begin our time by reading the passage. This is God's Word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or, and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. Last September, the Pew Research Center uh, conducted a survey among Americans across a broad range of ethnic, political, socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomic and religious backgrounds. And the topic of the survey was the future of the family in America. And the most significant finding of this survey is that a majority of Americans are pessimistic about the future of the family institution in America. So here are some, of the, some more specific findings uh, from that survey. So from the survey, we found that 40% of Americans are pessimistic about the future of Americans. 25% are optimistic, and 29% are neither pessimistic nor optimistic. Now, 63% of adults favor same-sex marriage and say that it's good for society. And 41% of that 60, 63% strongly favor same-sex marriage. Now, 59% of adults say that a, a, a married gay or lesbian couple who choose to raise children together is totally acceptable. And 73% say that gay and uh, lesbians uh, can be married but shouldn't have children. Only 11% of Americans surveyed found gay or lesbian marriage completely unacceptable. Now, get this. Half of adults, that's about 50% of adults, say that open marriages are acceptable. Now, do you know what open marriage is? Open marriage is a marriage in which one or both spouses in the marriage is free to pursue romantic or sexual relationships outside of the marriage while somehow remaining married. So 50% of people believe that that's acceptable. And when surveyed, these people, they were asked, okay, what makes life enjoyable and fulfilling. Just name anything that makes life enjoyable and fulfilling. 71% said having a career they enjoy. 76, 70, uh, excuse me, 61% mentioned having close friends. 26% mentioned having children. 24% mentioned having a lot of money. And only 23%, and that's the, the least of the list, only 23% mentioned marriage. Being married, being something that adds any kind of happiness and fulfillment to life. So when you hear these statistics, how does that strike you? Are you alarmed? Are you troubled? Are you surprised? I mean, perhaps you, you hear these numbers and you think, that doesn't strike me as surprising or alarming at all. I'm, I'm just fine with that. Or maybe if you're being honest, you're not entirely sure why the survey, these survey findings mean anything at all. Like, why is it important for us to be talking about this in church? Well, as it turns out, I think these survey findings are actually very important and more important than we may think. Because what we see in our society as a whole is undergoing what I recently heard one pastor describe as, as cultural disintegration. More and more, there's a, a diminishing moral clarity on the basics of, of how marriage and family should work. And not only that, we live in an era in which a lot of people can't even clearly define what a man or a woman is. 
on so many of the most fundamental matters of human existence and relationship, our society is losing its mind. But you don't need a survey to tell you that. Just think about your own relationships. Okay, think about your, your neighbors. Think about your colleagues at work, your classmates at school, the family members that you just spent time with over the, over the holidays. Now think about the politicians who make and enforce laws. Think about the, those who, are, uh, who function as cultural gatekeepers, the various influencers in society who, who function as sort of gatekeepers in society. Are you finding it harder to, to fit in with these people because of your views on, on marriage, on gender, on family, on sex? If so, you're not alone. For those of us who hold to a, a biblical worldview, this world is becoming a less convenient and a less comfortable place to live. And particularly when it comes to God's design for marriage, for family, for men and for women, the world's ambivalence seems to be transforming into outright rejection, and in some cases, open hostility. So the question then for us becomes, how should we as Christians live in a world that hates what we believe, and in some cases, seems to hate us? Well, in the letter of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter sets forth a, a vision for what it means for followers of Jesus to embrace uh, to, to, uh, for followers of Jesus to embrace being different in a world that demands conformity. For Peter, the real question he wants us to, to consider is, who are we conforming to? Who are we as Christians conforming to? Are, are we conforming to the world's standards for morality and truth and beauty? Or are we conforming to God's standard? Well, throughout the book of 1 Peter, we're taught that the very crux of living faithfully as a Christian essentially boils down to two things. Number one, it's being holy, okay? So to be holy means to stand apart from the world and what we hope in and how we conduct ourselves. So in chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, uh, Peter says this. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so the second thing that, that Peter calls out in terms of what it means to, to live faithfully as a Christian, he talks about suffering. How do we suffer in a way that commends Christ? How do we embrace the privilege of suffering for the sake of the gospel of Jesus? And so here in, in, uh, in chapter 3, a, later, a little bit later on from our passage in verses 13 and 14, Peter says this, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, here's something interesting. In the midst of calling Christians to, to suffer for the cause of Christ, Peter specifically calls out marriage. He calls out marriage in chapter 3 as a strategic opportunity for Christians, which leads us to the, the main point of our passage today, which is this. Marriage is a profound opportunity for us as Christians to joyfully suffer disgrace and to display to the world what it looks like to live a life that is totally, happily, unashamedly devoted to King Jesus. Now perhaps you're here and you think, well, how could my ordinary marriage mean all that? Well, as we look at Peter's instructions in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we find guidance for both wives and husbands, and these will serve as our two points for today. So point number one will be a wife's willing submission and that's verses 1 through 6. And the second point is a husband's gentle care. And that's verse 7. See, as we, as we see Peter giving instructions on, on what a marriage should look like, he gives instructions uh, particularly to wives and then particularly to husbands. And what that shows us, you know, among other things, is that men and women, though equal, are distinct. And so there are distinct roles and distinct responsibilities for both the husband and the wife in marriage. And so that's what we're going to consider today. What does it look like to, to live well in a marriage as a, as a wife? And what does it look like as a husband to live well in a marriage? And my hope today is to, uh, for us to see that this is not just a sermon for married couples. There's a lot of applications specifically for married couples, but it's not just a sermon for married couples. This is a sermon that's all about displaying the gospel 
through holy living and suffering for the sake of Christ. That's what marriage is about. And that's what our whole Christian life is about in this world that we live in. So let's look now at our passage, 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll read the first six verses as we look at our first point, a wife's willing submission. Verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear what is frightening. Well, in order to understand Peter's instructions to wives in these verses, it's important that we first understand the, the context uh, within which Peter's speaking here uh, in, in chapter 3. We, under, we need to understand the broader context of the whole book. And to help us here, Peter gives us a big clue in verse 1. He starts the, the verse with the word, likewise. So when we see this word likewise, what it does for us is it points us back to something that's already been said in order to show us that what he's saying now is connected to and it's the same thematic teaching of what he's already said. So in this case, I think the context shows that Peter's connecting his instructions to wives with the instructions that he's just given uh, to, uh, to all Christians who are called to submit to authorities and then servants who are called to submit to masters, earthly masters. So let's look here at, at chapter 2, which is directly before the, uh, the, the passage that we're looking at. And in chapter 2, verse 13, Peter says this. He says this to all Christians. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And then in verse 18... He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So what's the common phrase used in both of those verses? Well, it's the, the phrase, be subject. Peter calls us to be subject. In, in both cases, uh, Peter is calling on Christians to be subject to an authority figure as an essential part of Christian living. So two things we need to notice about this phrase, be subject. Okay, what's, what's within that phrase, be subject? Number one, this is a, a call to voluntary submission. Okay, it's a call to voluntary submission. Now, does it seem strange to you that Peter says, be subject? I think that's a little bit strange. Because after all, being subject isn't typically something we think of as being voluntary. It's not typically something we choose to do. Either we're subject or we're not. Okay, either we've been forced to submit against our will, or we're free to do what we want. Okay, so that's typically how we think about submission. Okay, we think of it similarly to, to slavery. Okay, we think of it as something that's a forced kind of thing. But Peter here acknowledges that even in authority structures that seem to be most inhibiting to us, we have an important choice to make. We have a choice, and the choice is this. Will we trust God's sovereignty and treat those in authority over us with love, respect, and honor? Or will we fearfully cling to our rights and fight at every turn for the status that we feel that we deserve? So it's notable here that Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls Christians to embrace a deliberate posture of submission to authority. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing we should notice about this phrase, be subject, is that Peter's aware of the fact that not all authority figures are good and deserving of our submission, okay? So let's read again in uh, verse 18. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So even when faced with unworthy, unjust authority, Peter says, be subject, be subject. And in verse 19, Peter uh, tells us his rationale. In verse 19, he says this, uh, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sor uh, sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
See, Peter wants us to fix our, our eyes on the, the good and faithful God who loves us in the midst of our suffering and who guides us and, and draws us along in the midst of our suffering because God is the one who we're, ult- we're ultimately submitting ourselves to. We're ultimately submitting ourselves to God. And so if Peter sees, like we see, that even the best human authorities are sinners. And even the best human authorities will, will fall short at some point. But it's vital that we understand what it means. That, uh, it's vital that we understand what it means to still show godly honor to authorities because this, this commends Christ. It commends Christ to do so. So, two things we learned just now. God-honoring submission is voluntary, and it's given sometimes to people who don't deserve it. All right? So this is really important background for us now as you look at uh, chapter 3 of, of, of uh, verse 1. Uh, like the two previous groups, Peter tells wives to be subject. So who are wives to be subject to? Well, to their own husbands, right here in verse 1. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So Peter makes it clear that he's talking about women, wives, being subject to their own husbands. So he's talking about a very particular relationship. He's not calling all women everywhere to submit to all men everywhere. He's talking about a very particular set of, uh, a particular set of roles in a particular uh, kind of relationship. But it all results in God being known and glorified uh, for his righteousness and grace. So just as God is, is glorified when Christians voluntarily submit to civil authorities and voluntarily uh, submit to earthly masters, God is glorified when wives voluntarily submit to their husbands. So, how is God glorified in, in wives submitting to their own husbands? Well, I see three ways that God is glorified through godly submission, and these are going to uh, serve as, as subpoints under that first point of, of willing submission, a wife's willing submission. So the first subpoint is godly submission advances the gospel. So in verses 1 and 2, uh, Peter provides a, a compelling reason for the wife to be subject to her husband. Okay? He provides a compelling reason. In, in verses 1 and 2, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Peter doesn't go into a whole lot of details about uh, the, the nuts and bolts of, okay, this is what uh, submission means and this is what it doesn't mean, and sort of a detailed list of how-tos in terms of uh, submitting to your, to, to the, your husband. But he does talk about the wife's character and the wife's conduct. And here, Peter talks about something interesting. He envisions a scenario in which a husband is essentially a mission field for his wife. Now, some people understand this phrase that that, uh, even if some do not obey the word, uh, some people understand that as referring simply to to a a Christian husband who sins. Okay, so this is somebody who believes the gospel, but he sins, and so in sinning, he's disobeying the word. Uh, but I think the context actually makes it clear that Peter's uh, uh, probably referring to an unbelieving husband. Okay, so why do I think that? Well, Peter uh, previously used this same phrase, uh, do not obey the word, in, verse two, or in chapter 2, verse 8, uh, to describe those who've rejected Jesus in their unbelief. And so there, Peter says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So in that passage, Peter's referring to a, a settled, unrepentant rejection of Jesus, who's the, the savior and the cornerstone of the church. And here in chapter 3, Peter uses the same language again uh, to refer individually to a husband who doesn't believe the gospel. Okay, so that's what I think Peter's talking about. He's talking about uh, there may be a circumstance when there's uh, a Christian wife married to a husband who doesn't believe the gospel. So what effect can a believing wife's submission have on an unbelieving husband? Well, Peter suggests here that the unbelieving husbands can be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So, so what's Peter saying here? At first glance, it might appear that he's saying, that, well, you know, uh, an unbelieving husband can come to faith without even hearing the gospel. He can just see the behavior of his wife, doesn't even need to hear the gospel, and, and, and that could bring him to faith. And in some ways, it might seem like Peter... Uh, is reinforcing uh, a saying that you may have heard, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Is that what Peter's saying, though? 
Can someone really be saved without hearing the gospel message? Well, I think we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture here. And to do that, I want to quickly look at Romans chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul, as an example of many other gospel, many other Christian writers, the Apostle Paul actually talks about this. And he says this in chapter 10. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, this is just one example, but I, I think that it actually uh, testifies to the rest of, of what the, the other biblical writers uh, say, what they teach, which is that the gospel message of, of Jesus, uh, crucified and risen from the dead, is a message that must be heard and believed on. It must be preached. It must be heard and believed on. So, what does, what does this mean then? What does it mean here when Peter says that uh, an un believing husband can be one without a word when he sees the conduct of his wife. Well, I think Peter's writing here with the assumption that uh, the wife probably has already proclaimed the gospel to her husband. She's probably already spoken the, God, uh, the gospel uh, to her, her, her husband using words. So I think the suggestion here is that husbands can be one without a word. I think that's a suggestion to wives to, to avoid badgering or, or harassing the husband with verbal pressure, or with ultimatums, or, or with frequent repetition of the gospel to a husband who just doesn't want to hear it right now. So another way to, a simple way to put it is, listen, don't beat him over the head with the gospel. Instead, Peter encourages wives to let their gracious attitude and conduct in their marriage be the main way. At least, at least for right now, the main way that the husband can encounter the glory and grace of Jesus. So have you ever seen God work that way? I know I have. Think about your testimony of coming to faith. Was it purely by hearing and understanding the gospel intellectually that you were led to believe? If so, then praise God. But maybe you were wooed to Christ, not only by hearing the preached word, but also by examples of Christians who truly believe the gospel and live their lives in such a way that helps you to see how real and how irresistible Jesus is. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was a friend or a pastor. For me, it was two guys named Drew and Jason, Two guys who lived in my college dorm room or my college dorm hall, and they joyfully sacrificed and, and gave their lives to serve their church and to serve their campus and to serve me and so many others who didn't know Jesus. Praise God for the ways that He uses ordinary lives of His saints as compelling, tangible displays of His amazing grace in Jesus. So Peter here is Again, describing an example of the husband who is an authority figure in marriage, but he isn't necessarily deserving of the submission that he's calling wives to. But for wives living with unbelieving husbands, there may be a temptation to take a fight-or-flight mentality. So you might think, okay, either I'm going to be assertive and sort of demand my rights, or I'm going to really push hard on, on the gospel and, and be even confrontational, or I'm just going to go silent and maybe even flee from this marriage because I, just, I, can't, I can't relate, I can't submit to this man because he doesn't deserve my submission. But Peter offers here a third way. He calls wives to honor the Lord, honor your husband, and pray for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. So that's sub-point number one. Sub-point number two, the second way that God is glorified through willing submission of wives is that godly submission displays the surpassing beauty of Christ over all things. So look here in verse 3. In verse 3, Peter continues his instruction to wives by shifting the focus onto the wife's aspirations for beauty. So in verses 3 and 4, he says this, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
Peter here is acknowledging that he's acknowledging something that, that resonates with all of us on, on, on some level, and that's the search for beauty, the pursuit of beauty. Now, I'm sure most everyone has uh, heard the, the, the saying, beauty is in the eye of the, the beholder. Now, this idea is that everyone basically has the capacity to, uh, to define beauty on their own, in their own way. But what's interesting about this passage is that Peter claims that uh, we really uh, have, that, that there really are only two basic ways to define beauty. Two basic ways to define beauty. That's the world's way and God's way. Okay? So on the one hand, there's the world's way, and on the other hand, there's, there's God's way. Peter explains that uh, we see the one way of defining beauty leads to joy and satisfaction, while the other way of defining beauty is simply empty. So in these verses, Peter contrasts two visions of beauty. In verse 3, there's the external vision of beauty. And in verse 4, there's the internal vision of beauty. What does Peter say about the external vision of beauty? Well, Peter instructs wives in verse 3 to, uh, to avoid adorning themselves with external beauty. Now, some might read this and say, okay, well, Peter is clearly prohibiting women from doing anything to, to focus on external beauty or their appearance. So... I can't wear the clothing that I like or that, that, I, that I think looks beautiful. I can't wear any makeup. I can't go get my hair done. Is that what Peter's saying? I don't think that's what Peter's saying at all. Instead, Peter is highlighting the fact that uh, the external aspects of beauty are a shaky and dangerous ground on which to, to ground our hope. Okay? So consider the language that Peter uses here. In, in verse 3, he, he warns why, that he warns wives against adorning themselves with externals. Uh, so this word adorning, uh, I think, is a, is a really interesting term. I think here the implied, there's an implied distinction between simply using external objects of beauty uh, that uh, we can enjoy or find useful, uh, as opposed to using these objects as a means to garner attention from others or to achieve a feeling of worth or hope or power that we can't otherwise achieve. In other words, I think Peter here is urging Christians to flee from idolatry. So whatever we look to, to provide only what God can, or to give us the delusion that we ourselves can be like God, that thing is an idol. So the danger of idolatry exists for all of us. Almost everywhere we look, there's the, the danger of idolatry. And so the 16th century reformer John Calvin puts it this way. He says, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. I think Calvin's right. We have the ability, unfortunately, to make an idol pretty much out of, out of anything. But the risk of idolatry seems particularly apparent for women who are bombarded with the world's, uh, the world's empty promises of external beauty. And yet Peter here is encouraging women to cling to a better promise. In verse 4, he talks about uh, the, the, the vision of internal beauty. He invites wives to capture a vision for beauty that's rooted in God's standards for beauty. So what's the antidote for an idolatrous focus on external standards of beauty? Well, Peter shifts our focus from external appearance, external appearance to the hidden person of the heart. Now, you might recall that uh, we've sometimes, in referring to the heart, we've, the way we've defined the definition, we've taken the definition of, of uh, Pastor Paul Tripp, and we've uh, referred to the, the, the heart as the causal core of personhood. Now, the reason I like this definition is that I think it really uh, gets to the heart, uh, pun intended, the heart of what the heart is. Uh, it's who we are in our thoughts and in our desires and what we love and what we hate, what we live for and what we're willing to die for. That's our heart. All of that makes us who we are internally. And for Christians, the very core of who we are has been transformed by Christ. And there are no externals in ways, there, there are no ways in which externals could, uh, could ever transform us the way Christ has transformed us, the way God has, has remade us and continues to remake us. And that's what the gospel is all about. In, when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're remembering, we're recalling the fact that we ourselves, we were created in God's image to, 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 to bear his image, to, uh, to display who he is, to worship him in everything that we do. And we failed to do that. And he, 
sent Jesus to live a perfect life that we failed to live, and he died on the cross. Jesus died to pay the penalty that, that we deserved so that we would be forgiven of our sins because there's nothing that we could do to ever pay that penalty ourselves. No amount of works, no amount of, of uh, character or, or righteousness on our own that we could drum up to, uh, to, to cause God to forgive us. But Jesus paid that penalty for us, and he rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death on the cross and in his resurrection. And he promises us a place in his family. When we die from, from this world, when we die, Jesus has promised us that he's going uh, to raise us up from the grave. We're going to have a, a physical resurrection, and we're going to be with him forever in, in, a, in a marriage relationship. But it's not going to be like the marriage relationship that, that, that we have on earth where there's sin and there's struggle and there's conflict. There's going to be perfect peace and joy. And he calls us to faith. He calls us to, to repent from our sins. He calls all of us today to respond to this gift of love in the gospel by turning from our sins and placing our faith in Jesus, clinging to Jesus by faith. That's what he calls us to do today. If you're here this morning and you, you haven't repented and believed, this is a message that you haven't believed for yourself. We invite you this morning. Make it happen today. Jesus, Jesus tells us that uh, he wants us to, to, to come to him empty-handed because there's nothing that we could even bring for, our, for ourselves to him as a gift. But he, he, he tells us to, to come to him empty-handed and he will save us. He will welcome us into his family. That's the promise that's, that's held out to us in the gospel. The thing about the focus on external beauty is that we often want to clean ourselves up. We often want to fix ourselves up before God. We want to make ourselves worthy of his grace. But that's actually, there's actually no way we can do that. I think one interesting way, you know, I've mentioned Paul Tripp. Uh, he, he's provided another great illustration that uh, I, I thought was helpful in thinking through, okay, just the, the foolishness of focusing on externals and trying to dress ourselves up, make ourselves look pretty for, for, for Jesus. Imagine that we have a, uh, an, an apple tree outside, outside the, outside the church, and this apple tree is dying. Okay? And I say, okay, how are we going to save this apple tree? How are we going to save this apple tree and make it so that it's got beautiful, fresh apples growing on it? Uh, right now it's just withering and dying. There's no fruit there. What are we going to do? I say, ah, I've got an idea. I'm going to go down to, to, you know, to Wegmans and buy a big basket of apples, I'm going to go down to Home Depot and buy a nail gun, and I'm going to get up on a ladder and start nailing apples to that tree. You all would look at me and see that and say, Marcus has lost his mind. What is he doing? That's not, that's not going to cause that, that tree to be saved and to be a healthy fruit tree. No, I'm just doing something to, you know, it might look externally okay from afar, but is that a healthy tree? No, that tree is still going to die. That tree is still withering and dying. There's not going to be any fruit growing from it. I think this is a, a good picture of our spiritual state. We often try to, to nail apple trees to the externals of our, of our life and try to make things look pretty. But God has already told us, he said, there's, there's no works that can save us. The works of the flesh will not save us, but we are saved by God's grace through our faith in Jesus. See, the beauty that's, that's occurring in all of our lives is an imperishable beauty that's attainable only through Christ. And that's the call that, that Peter holds out here to, to wives. He says, look for that beauty. Seek, seek that beauty. You know, pursue that beauty that's found in Christ. The best news of all is that Jesus will return and complete this work that he's begun. So there's a, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but we have to keep moving on here to our third point, which is this. That Peter shows us that godly submission follows the example of God's people from of old. Let's look at verses 5 and 6 here, where Peter encourages wives to follow the example of godly sisters who went before them. This is verse 5. This is how the holy women of old, sorry, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, 
as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter here reminds us uh, that just as we've benefited from godly examples in our salvation, so we continue to, to benefit as we, uh, as we continue to walk with Jesus. We benefit from godly examples in how to walk with Jesus faithfully. Now, notice what Peter says here about these saints who went before. Two things he mentions about these, these women uh, who, whom wives are, are called to, to, to emulate. He says, number one, these are holy women. These are holy women who hoped in God. So they were holy and they hoped in God. What a beautifully simple way to describe what it means to live faithfully. As Christians, we're called to do two things. We're called to be holy and we're called to hope in God. Christian, does this describe your life? If someone were to look at your life, would they see someone who's holy, someone who hopes in God? If someone were to describe Franconia Baptist Church, is that what they would see? Is that how they would describe us as a church that's holy, a church who seeks holiness, pursues holiness, and a church that hopes in God? Well, for wives in particular, marriage is an opportunity to walk in holiness and to trust in God's sovereign grace. In verse 5, we're reminded uh, that the godly women of old submitted to their own husbands. Now, Peter's not done here. Uh, he goes on to provide a, a concrete example of this, this holiness. Here in verse 6, he says this, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything uh, that is frightening. So Peter recalls Sarah as an example. Okay, She's an example for wives to, to follow in submitting to their husbands. Now notice specifically what he says about Sarah's uh, submission, uh, submission to Abraham. Here's what it looked like. She obeyed him and called him Lord. Now if you've read the book of Genesis, as we, you know, we read that passage this morning, you know that Abraham was far from perfect. Abraham was a mess in some ways. He did that twice, okay? He did that in Egypt, and he did that with Abimelech, where he cooks up this scheme of, okay, Sarah, you're going to pretend you're my wife, and we're going to go in there, and, and uh, you know, hopefully they'll let us live. And she, she goes along with it. So we know that Abraham is far from perfect. But Peter wants us to focus our attention on how, on how, uh, how excuse me, Peter wants us to focus our attention uh, not on, on Abraham and his worthiness to be followed, uh, but how Sarah faithfully followed him, even going so far as to obey him and to call him Lord. So this obedience and this calling him Lord, uh, these two actions, uh, they weren't the entire definition of her submission. That's not all that her sub submitting to Abraham meant, uh, but they were certainly part of her call to submit. That's what it looked like, and that's, what's, uh, that's what... Peter wants to hold up to wives here. He says, look at Sarah, look at her example in following Abraham. And so just like children are called to follow the, the godly example of their parents, wives today are invited to follow Sarah's example of following an imperfect man. In fact, that's the language that Peter uses. Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that you, women sitting here today, are, Abra or, or, excuse me, are Sarah's children if you follow in her footsteps of godly submission, it's as if Peter's re recalling God's promises to Abraham and to Sarah to provide them with, with generations of offspring, children. This is a sweet reminder, and this is a sweet fulfillment of that promise. By faith in Jesus and by following in Sarah's example, you are her children. One final thing here that, that Peter uh, wants to draw out and to encourage women with. Peter says here that Christian wives are children of Sarah if they do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. So how in the world does that make sense? How do we fear something that's not frightening? If something's frightening, that means we should be afraid, right? Well, Peter says absolutely not. You see, Peter acknowledges that wives are in a particularly vulnerable situation here. He says, your husband has, has sinned grievously, Okay, be, be subject to him. Your husband is unwise and not at all great at being a husband. 
All right, be subject to him. Your husband doesn't even follow Jesus? All right, be subject to him. Listen, I'm not a wife, all right? (laughs) I'm not a wife, and I'm not called to submit to a husband. But let me tell you, this sounds scary. This sounds scary to, to be called to do that. But here's the hope held out for us in the gospel. Christ is greater than everything that we fear. And he has overcome even death for us, for us who have faith in him. Listen, this world is, is fallen, and we are not promised freedom from suffering or difficult situations. But the rock-solid promise that we hold on to is that if we belong to Jesus, none of our suffering is wasted. And we have the sure hope of eternal life in him. So one of the reasons our society is increasingly hostile to this idea of submission in marriage is that there's an idea that that the biblical call to submit is inherently chauvinistic and it gives husbands a, a license to abuse and to subjugate women. But friends, I want to tell you here on the authority of God's word that nothing can be farther from the truth. Neither Peter nor any of the biblical writers uh, take abuse lightly. And in fact, abuse in marriage is widely considered to be, and there's scriptural warrant for it, one of the few things that might permit a, a wronged spouse to legitimately dissolve a marriage. So let me be clear. If you are abused... If you're being abused or you're being threatened or you're, you're fearful of that, God does, not quiet, God does not call you to just quietly endure. He doesn't call you to that. For your physical and spiritual well-being, please seek help from members of your church, from the authorities if necessary. If you're in danger, church, let's not take abuse lightly. Let's not take that kind of sin lightly. Do not enable abusers through this idea of biblical submission. Because that's not what Peter does. And that's not what any of the biblical writers do. But we need to see here that God's call to wives in any and every marriage situation is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and trust in his sovereignty. But Peter's not quite done yet. For the the time being, he's done talking to wives. But he has some important instruction uh, to husbands here. So that's going to move us to our second point here. Verse 7, a husband's gentle care. In verse 7, It reads thusly, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter recognizes that the the responsibility of Christians to display Christ to the world through marriage is a responsibility for both husbands and wives. So if wives are called to be subject to their husbands, what are what are wives called or excuse me what are husbands called to do? Well we see here that he's told us okay husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. Notice notice what Peter doesn't say here to husbands. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say husbands make sure your wife respects you and submits to you. Or husbands make sure you lead strongly and give your wife plenty of direction. At all, at all times, so that she remembers who's in charge. It's not, what, it's not what Peter says. Peter here instructs husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way. So a natural question to ask is, okay, when he says an understanding way, uh, understanding what? what we, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't explicitly say that. So like, what, what does he mean in understanding way? Some people understand this to mean that a husband should be understanding and considerate to his wife, and especially um, considering the vulnerable position that she's in. I certainly don't think that's inconsistent with the passage at all. And I think that uh, that's definitely part of a husband's responsibility to care for his wife, is to be considerate for, to her and to understand her and what she's going through and how he can best love her and, and support her. But I think that Peter's main point is, is uh, actually a much bigger point for husbands than, than just being understanding and considerate. Uh, this phrase, understanding way, is literally translated according to knowledge. So many scholars agree that uh, Peter here is uh, talking about understanding God's will, and specifically here, understanding God's will for marriage. So husbands should understand what God has called them to, all the things that God has called us to as husbands, and there's, there's a lot, and to live accordingly. So 
Peter doesn't just stop there. He goes further to clarify what it looks like for a husband to do this well, to, to live, with the, live with his wife in an understanding way. He says this. He says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, again, this is another interesting verse, uh, something of a controversial verse for many people because uh, on the face of it, people say, okay, uh, so, so what, what is this supposed to mean? Uh, does, there's all kinds of things that it, that it, that it could mean. What is, what is he talking about when he refers to the woman as the weaker vessel? Well, first, I want to talk about briefly what it doesn't mean, okay? Peter's not saying here that women are, are weaker spiritually, morally, emotionally, or intellectually. There's actually no evidence for that whatsoever in the Scriptures. Uh, and it actually contradicts what we know from our own experience in the world, does it not? Women aren't weaker in any of those ways, spiritually, morally, uh, intellectually, or, or, uh, or emotionally. Um, in fact, Peter himself gives us a clue in this verse uh, that that's not what he means at all. He says, uh, women are heirs with you of the grace of life. And so there he's saying, okay, he's reminding us, hey, women are actually equal partners with us uh, spiritually. Women are equal, uh, they're, they're sisters with us in, in, in Christ, equal heirs with us uh, in the inheritance of the gospel. So why is Peter referring to women here as the weaker vessel? Well, simply put, I think Peter's drawing attention to the fact that women are, in general, physically weaker than men. In doing so, Peter's uh, reminding men to use their authority in marriage in such a way that wives don't feel threatened, wives don't feel uh, abused, or, or uh, their, their, emotional, their, their emotional vulnerability or anxiety is heightened, but rather... Men are to use their strength to protect and to nurture. Uh, this, is a, this is an idea that has become increasingly unacceptable in our society. So we, again, we're talking about the ways that society looks at this call to submit and, and the, the distinction that's made here. Uh, the idea that men and women are different in their physical qualities and should conduct themselves as such has led many Christians, or has led many to view Christians as just simply backward thinkers. But what's obvious to us today was obvious to Peter as well. Men bear, men bear the primary responsibility to use our strength to serve and to protect. By drawing attention to this, Peter is he's not having a, a, a macho man you know, pep rally and just dunking on women. No. Peter is specifically calling men to use their strength to honor women and not harm them. And at the very end of the verse... Uh, Peter warns us that our prayers as men, our prayers may be hindered if we, if we don't do this well. If we fail to see women as uh, the equal partners of salvation that they are, and as we, if we fail to protect them and nurture them with our strength, our prayers could be hindered. You see, God is gracious, but he's also just. And God will not tolerate a man who, uh, who threatens his wife or abuses or mistreats his wife. And yet there's hope for the husband who struggles, a husband who's, uh, who's repentant and says, you know what, I do uh, recognize that I'm imperfect, I'm a sinner, and sometimes I'm going to make mistakes, sometimes I'm going to speak a harsh word to my wife, sometimes I'm going to misuse my authority, but praise God, there is hope for the husband, there's hope for all of us. If we repent, and as, as Peter has called the wife to, to look to Jesus, he does the same thing to for the husband. He calls us to, to look to our Savior for hope and for help. So this is actually one of the reasons that this passage isn't, isn't just for husbands and wives. Uh, it's also a call for the whole church to clearly and lovingly uphold the value of both women and men as God has created us all uniquely in his image. Now more than ever, our world, uh, what our world needs is, is clarity on how God made men and how God made women, how we're equal and yet distinct, how as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are, we're all essential to the body of Christ. This is what our world needs. I want to just close with two very brief, very brief points of application for, for all of us here as we think about uh, this call to, um, to glorify God through godly marriage. Number one, how do we respond to our culture's hostility? We've talked about the fact that uh, many of the things we talked about, the, the distinction between men and women, the call for, for women to submit. 
these are just a, a couple of examples of how our culture uh, views us as Neanderthals in our thinking, in, in, in what the Bible says and how we live. So how do we respond? Well, again, Peter tells us in, in, uh, later on in chapter 3, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts set apart uh, the Lord Jesus, set apart uh, the Lord Jesus as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared and willing to give a, a verbal declaration of the gospel, verbal clarity in preaching the gospel, explaining what God's word says and why we live this way. Secondly, the second point of application, godly marriage, as we've seen here in our passage, is a wonderful tool for evangelism. So we're talking about proclaiming the gospel. Uh, a godly marriage of, of submission and loving and caring as a husband, that's a wonderful way to commend Christ. So both inside the marriage and outside of the marriage, uh, we have wonderful behavioral examples of what it looks like to live as a Christian. And that can be a, a, a compelling way for those who don't believe to see that, okay, what we're doing, we're not doing, we don't live this way because it's all about us. We live this way because this images, this shows the, the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. We're not claiming to be perfect ourselves, but we're showing that, okay, Jesus has, has brought us into, into his family, and so now we are living accordingly. God displays his own glory through his people as they stand apart, as we stand apart from the world in our faith and in our obedience to him. A wonderful hope that we remember and that we cling to. If you recall, we, we read uh, Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul reminds us that, hey, marriage isn't ultimately about us. It's not ultimately about us. He, he, he says to wives, submit to your own, own husbands, ask the Lord. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, Jesus himself is, is the bridegroom of the church. And it's only through following him that we gain a true vision not for, for not only what God-honoring marriage should be, but the glory that awaits us when he comes again. Friends, let's think about that and let's celebrate that. Let's go ahead and pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your grace. Lord, we give you thanks for your mercy. Lord, thank you for the wonderful picture that marriage is of the gospel. Thank you for the calling that you've given to all of us, to those of us who are married, to those who are single, uh, to, to all of us in every uh, stage of life that we have to verbally proclaim the gospel and to live in holiness in ways that to image the gospel and to suffer well, to embrace the call to suffer for the sake of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that. Father, we pray that you would make us faithful, that you would cause us to uh, meditate on your word, that you would put it into our hearts that we might love you and worship you and obey you in everything that we do, and that you would receive the glory. And Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.